Hey, good morning, Genesis. You just didn't hear me the first time. I get it. My mic wasn't on. That's cool. Hey, I'm sorry it's so chilly in here today. <laughs> Apparently, our AC is still stuck in uh, wintertime, so we'll have that fixed for you by next week. I apologize about that. If you're new or online, I hope you have air conditioning wherever you are, and I hope it's comfortable there. So we're glad to have you tuning in with us today. Uh, my name is Jerry. I'm the campus pastor here at Genesis Church in Carmel, and uh, we really are excited to be gathering with you this morning as we celebrate who Jesus is and what he has done for us. Um, if you were with us last weekend for Good Friday services or for Easter services, you know that it was a really special weekend and some, God did some really cool things. And many of you have reached out to us to thank our staff for just the feel, everything that happened last weekend. And I want to say thank you. It's been a really encouraging week for us, but I want you to know that the feeling is mutual because we really do love gathering with you guys to celebrate Jesus for who he is and all he has done with us. And so I want to thank a few different groups of people. First of all, I want to thank those of you that serve on a regular basis. Whether you realize it or not, when you serve, you are doing a fantastic job of making Genesis a warm and welcoming and inviting place for people that are new. We hear from people that are new all the time. Gosh, the people here are just so friendly. I, I just, when I, when I come through the front doors, I feel like I can immediately belong here. And so I want to say thank you for those of you, whether you're serving with kids or in the lobby or at the cafe or with tech or worship, wherever you serve, thank you. I also want you to know that we've got lots of places for you to serve. If you're not currently serving in any one of those areas, and my challenge to you would be, God has given you some gifts and abilities. Why not use those to build up our church family? So thank you to those of you that serve. If you're interested in serving, you can stop by the blue tent in the lobby, and we would love to help you get connected there. Um, the next group that I want to say thank you to are those of you that give on a regular basis. You know this, but our mission is to help people find their way back to God. And last weekend, we got to see a visual representation of that. Between our two campuses, we had 13 people that were baptized into Christ as a powerful visual representation of their faith in Jesus. And so that's just a small, a small glimmer of what our mission looks like. But since last fall, our attendance has been steadily climbing, and that's been really exciting. We have new people that visit us every week, and some of those folks are finding a place in a group, or they're finding a place to serve, and they're becoming part of the Genesis Church family. And so if you give on a regular basis, I just want to remind you, you're helping to make that possible. I hope that you're able to see and experience what God is doing in and through our church family. Sometimes you can't always see it, but I want you to be encouraged and know we're growing and good things are happening. So thank you to those of you that give on a regular basis. If you're curious about giving for the first time, you can go to our giving site at genesischurch.me forward slash give, and you can set up a one-time or recurring gift there, or you can give in the boxes at the back of the room. But however you choose to do that, we really do believe this is an act of worship and it is a privilege for us to get to partner with you in this way. So I'm going to take a moment and pray. I want to thank God for what he's doing, and then I want to ask for his help as we jump into his word this morning. So would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the way that you are moving in your church, not just at Genesis, but throughout the world. And we got to experience something really cool last weekend as we visually watched the cross. We looked at the cross. We focused on the cross, and, and it was an emotional experience for a lot of us. But Jesus, would you help us to live that out every day in all that we do? I want to thank you for the people that serve and that give to build up the Genesis Church family. Would you help us to be faithful to you in all that we do so that your name could be made great and be made known? And Father, we do, as Kevin said, we pray for your help as we study through Scripture today. We want you to illuminate our hearts and our minds. <clears throat> we want you to teach us. We're going to be heading into a familiar passage today, Father, but would you bring it to light in a brand new way for us? And would you help us to leave here not just knowing something different, 
but living differently because of who you are, Jesus. We love you, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen. So last weekend, as followers of Jesus, many of us gathered together to celebrate his death, burial, and resurrection in our place, right? Really exciting weekend for us as, as followers of Jesus. But I don't know if you heard or not, we weren't the only ones that were celebrating last weekend. For the first time in over 30 years, the Christian celebration of Easter aligned with the Jewish feast of Passover and the Muslim celebration of Ramadan. So here's what that means. We're celebrating the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, while observant Jews all over the world were celebrating God delivering their people from Egyptian slavery. For, and they celebrate that. They've been celebrating that for generations. But at the very same time, Muslims were gathering to celebrate Ramadan where they were feasting and they were fasting to celebrate the day where they believe that their God, Allah, revealed the Quran to the prophet Muhammad. Now, that's a lot of celebration going on for one week in April. I did a little math this week. I looked this up. If you, if you take all of those world religions and you combine them together, the three of them represent 56% of the world population. So that last weekend, it's safe to say that over half of the world's population was celebrating a pillar of their faith. But here's what's really interesting. In a news article that I read in Newsweek, it says that events like this are often referred to as a harmony between the traditions, which sounds on the surface like a really good thing because it implies peace with and respect for different religious groups and backgrounds. But I think we got to pay attention to this particular alignment because the truth is that Jews, Muslims, and Christians all trace our heritage back to a promise that God made to a man named Abraham in the Old Testament book of Genesis. So we all trace our heritage back to the same place, but the reality is that Jews, Muslims, and Christians all believe very different things <clears throat> when it comes to who God is and what he is like. And specifically, we all view the person of Jesus very differently. And so here's a question that I want you to think about. What makes Jesus different? What makes him different? Why is it that we're following him? And why do other people follow other gods and, and, and worship in different in a variety of different ways. Well, we're going to take a look at a claim that Jesus made today that will help answer that question. So if you have a Bible, I want to invite you right now to turn to John chapter 8. We're going to continue in our year-long study of the gospel of John in this series that we've entitled Grow. And in John chapter 8, Jesus makes a claim about himself that sets him apart from any other prophet, any other teacher, any other religious leader ever. And it all happens in John chapter 8. But before we get to John chapter 8, I want to give you a little bit of background so you can understand what is happening when he makes this statement. Now, I don't know if you've noticed this yet or not, but in the gospel of John, when John is writing, I'm starting to learn that he writes in chunks of time. And I've heard that John's gospel was the last gospel that was written. And I think it's possible that he might have read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and he went back and filled in some details. And so when he writes, he writes in spurts of like two and three days. And what we're going to see is in John 7, something takes place that affects John 8 and that will affect John 9 again next week. And in John 7, we learn that it was the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles that was underway, which was a week-long celebration that commemorated the 40-year period when the Israelites were living in tents and wandered in the wilderness when God had set them free from their Egyptian slavery. Okay? So this is a feast that lasts for an entire week. And during this week, there were two things that the Jews would celebrate to remind them of things that God had done during that 40-year period. The first was referred to as the pouring of the water. And every day for seven days, 
a priest would come out in front of the temple holding a golden pitcher of water, and he would dump that water on a rock as a reminder of the time that God had provided water from a rock in the wilderness. It was a visual reminder for them. But the second is referred to as the illumination of the temple. And this would take place in the treasury. It happened the very first day, and it would take place in the treasury, which is where people would come to give their financial gifts for the temple. And I want you to hear how Kent Hughes describes the illumination of the temple. At the center of the treasury, he says, there were four giant candelabras that would be set up. Some people say, some accounts say that they could have been as high as the tallest walls of the temple. So like 40, 50, 60 feet in the air, four giant candelabras. And at the top of each one of these four candelabras were four bowls that held 65 liters of oil each. That's the equivalent to a little over 17 gallons. So 16 different bowls on these four different candelabras. And each evening, young, healthy priests would climb up these giant ladders to each candelabra and they would dump oil in each one of those bowls. And then they would light the wicks. And what, what happened was 16 giant torches that would be burning <clears throat> in the temple area. Now, according to Jewish rabbinical tradition, the light from these 16 torches was bright enough to illuminate the entire temple and much of the city of Jerusalem for an entire week. So picture this in your mind. In fact, I want to show you a picture of what this might have looked like. You can tell how it lights up, all that light lights up the temple area, but it's believed that it would have lit up most of the rest of the city of Jerusalem. And the lighting of these torches took place at the beginning of the feast, which meant that the city was all aglow day and night for seven days. But as spectacular as the light and maybe even the heat would have been from seeing all of that, it's the image behind it. It's what it was meant to remind the people that was more important because all of that light was a reminder for the people of how God had led the Israelites for 40 years in the wilderness by a pillar of fire. Some historians describe the illumination of the temple as a stunning event that looked like a diamond shining at the center of the city of Jerusalem. Can you, can you even imagine what that must have looked like? Now, with that in mind, all of that sets the stage for what we're going to read about in John chapter 8. All of this bright light burning for seven days. It's the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. We learn this in John chapter seven and Jesus is sitting down to speak to a group of people. And one thing we know about this period in Jesus's life is whenever he spoke to a crowd, the crowds were usually large. We don't know how large this crowd was, but listen to what he says in John eight twelve. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Think about how bold that statement is when Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Now, just for added effect, if you read down to verse 20, we learn that he made that proclamation in the treasury, in the same room with all those giant candelabras. In front of all of that light, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. The city had been aglow for several days. And this is what Jesus is saying about himself. So what does he mean when he says, I'm the light of the world? Now, this is the second of seven I am statements that Jesus makes about himself in the gospel of John. And in each I am statement, he's pointing to a specific role that he claims to be able to fulfill for each one of us spiritually and eternally. 
But that's not all. We learned a few weeks ago that in each one of these I am statements, Jesus is actually claiming to be God, which means he's crazy and he needs some mental help or he's telling the truth and he is inviting us to partake of what he has to offer. So what did he mean when he said, I am the light of the world? Now, throughout the Old Testament, light was used as a metaphor for God's saving work throughout the world. And I mentioned this earlier. Just think about the pillar of fire story that we see in Exodus, where God was leading the people in this pillar of fire. That's one example. There's other examples that are found in the Psalms. Psalm 27.1 says this, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Psalm 119.105 says, your word is a lamp for my feet and a light for my path. And so we get this idea of God providing guidance and protection through the image of light all throughout the Old Testament. But there's one place in particular that I want us to look at and pay attention to, and it's the first place that light is mentioned in the Old Testament because light here is more than an image. It's actually the source of life. We gotta go all the way back to the very first book in scripture, the book of Genesis, chapter one, verse one. These are the first words recorded for us in scripture. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So right away, the writer of Genesis says, God is the creator of everything. And look at what he says in verse two. Now the earth was formless and empty and darkness was over the surface of the deep. So when God first created the earth, It was formless, it was empty, and it was dark. That doesn't sound like a great place to live, does it? It doesn't sound very inviting. How many of you have ever been trapped in darkness? Not like, I'm not talking spiritual darkness. I'm talking like physical darkness in a room, in a cave, in a car. You're in the dark and you don't know where to go or what to do. It's not a fun experience, is it? Excuse me. When I was in college, my friend Craig was a youth pastor. And he wanted to take 20 high school students on a whitewater rafting trip to the middle of nowhere, West Virginia. Now, what you need to know about Craig was he's a terrible planner. I, don't, I still don't think he's a great planner, right? But all the parents and all the kids loved him. And they're like, this sounds like a good idea. You should load up vans and take our kids to the middle of nowhere, West Virginia. You go do that. That sounds great. And I was dumb and foolish enough to be like, this sounds like fun. Let's go do that, Craig. And so we load up 20 kids and we take off. But here's what you need to know. This was way back in the 1900s, okay? <laughs> there, were, there were no Google Maps. There was no Siri. There's no like change. You had to get out paper maps and figure out where you're going. And neither one of us were good at that. So here's a little bit of a spoiler alert. We didn't plan well. Because not only did we have to find where we were going, we had to plan on when to leave and when to get there. And we stopped and had a little fun along the way with the kids. And so when we arrived to the middle of nowhere, West Virginia, the sun had been set for 90 minutes. And we're driving on gravel roads with paper maps. We were lost. And we got to where we thought we were supposed to be. And then we were tent camping. And so we had to set up all the tents in the dark. And you know those really cheap plastic flashlights We had those in some really bad D batteries. I mean, we had little to no light. It was a disaster. And there were banjos playing off in the distance. We we were done, right? It was horrible. If you've ever been trapped in a place that's dark with no light, like you don't want to be there long. Well, I want you to go back and listen how God describes or how the writer of Genesis describes the creation of the world. It was formless and it was empty and it was dark. You could say it was nebulous, it was shapeless, it was lifeless, and it was pitch black. It sounds completely overwhelming. 
But listen to Genesis 1-3. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God literally spoke light into existence. And if you keep reading throughout Genesis 1, you find that there was an amazing transformation that begins to take place. Because when God created light, he began to push back the darkness. And he began to form what had been formless. He began to fill what was empty. And then he brought it all to life. Let me say that one more time. Just picture this in your mind. God creates light. He begins to push back the darkness. He shapes what is shapeless. He fills what is empty and he takes what is lifeless and he brings it to life. Now hold on to that thought and let's go look and see how John begins his gospel account in John chapter one. He says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Now, there's a lot for us to unpack here. So let's back up to verse one. Did you notice that John begins his gospel the same way that Genesis begins with in the beginning? This is John's way of saying, I'm gonna tell you about who Jesus is and I'm gonna connect it to the very first story that we have in the beginning when God created. So he's connecting Jesus's life with the story God's always been telling. But you'll also notice that he capitalizes the word, word, the W in the word, word. This is a very clever way for John to tell his readers that Jesus is God. You could take out the word, word, and you could replace Jesus's name in there. And it would say, in the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. Look at verse three. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. I mean, this is a really bold statement about who Jesus is, but look at verse four and five. In him, in Jesus, was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, this is the first of 16 times in John's gospel when he refers to light to describe to us who Jesus is. And here, this light is specifically referred to as a light for all mankind that the darkness cannot overcome. Now, let's go back to John 8 and listen to what Jesus says about himself. He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So when Jesus at this feast in front of all those lights says, I'm the light of the world, he is saying, I want you to pay attention because every reference to light you've ever read in the Old Testament is pointing to me. And did you notice he not only claims to be the light of the world, he also claims to have the power to overcome darkness and to be the light of life. Now, let's stop and connect some dots. Go back to the story in Genesis. When God creates light, what happens? He pushes back the darkness. He forms what is formless. He fills what is empty. And he takes what is lifeless and he brings it to life. And so when Jesus claims to be the light of the world, he's claiming that he has come to do all of that for me and for you. As the light of the world, Jesus is claiming that he alone has the power to take the broken, shattered pieces of our lives and to reshape them for his purposes. He's claiming that he alone can fill the emptiness that you and I feel so deep down inside of our souls by refilling us with the Holy Spirit of God through faith in him. And he's claiming that he alone has the power to take someone who is spiritually dead and to raise them to life. When Jesus claims 
and says, I am the light of the world, he is claiming that he has the authority to forgive sins and to restore you to your relationship with God through faith in him. Now, that's not just good news. That's great news. That's the best news out there. And if you've ever had an encounter with the resurrected Jesus, you know this. You remember the period of your life when you first experienced his light because you remember the way you used to be. You remember when you used to be dominated by anger. You remember when you used to be enslaved to addictions, to pornography and alcohol and drugs. But then Jesus shined his light in your life and all of a sudden he said, I will take your broken pieces and I will reshape them and I will use your life in ways you never imagined. I just want you to follow me. Or maybe you remember chasing after things that you thought were gonna fill you up and so you said, I'm gonna climb the corporate ladder as high as I can and I'm gonna make all the money that I think I can make and I am gonna collect all the stuff and all of a sudden you realize I'm empty. But then Jesus shined his light in your life and you realized in him is satisfaction and fullness and fulfillment. Or maybe you remember walking in darkness, the darkness of depression or the crippling effects of anxiety or the enslavement to addiction. But then Jesus shined his light through a friend and you started to see and know the love of God or you found a church family where you realized there were people that followed Jesus and they cared about you. And they, wanted, they were committing to walking with you through the ups and downs of life. This is what makes Jesus different. When Jesus claimed to be the light of the world, he was setting himself apart from anyone, anywhere, for all time. Because every other religious tradition tells us, if you really wanna succeed, you gotta bring light to the world. You gotta be the best you can be. You gotta be really good. You can't mess up. But Jesus says, that's not the way it works with me. Jesus says, I, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now don't miss this. Jesus doesn't just claim to be the light of the world. He says, I wanna set your life on fire for me as well. And so this is what this means. When we place our trust and our faith in Jesus, he promises to push back the darkness that we face every single day. He promises to reshape your brokenness and to use it for ways for his glory, not ours. He promises to replace the emptiness and to give us eternal life. That is the good news of the message of the gospel. Through faith in Jesus, all of that is possible, but it's only possible through faith in him. But that's not all. Jesus actually has given us a brand new mission in life. I want you to listen to this teaching from Jesus that's recorded for us in Matthew chapter five in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says this to his followers that had gathered around him. He said, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Now, I don't know about you, but personally, that's fascinating and humbling because Jesus is saying, I am commissioning you to take my light and to share it with you everywhere you go. This is your mission. And it's not a burden. It's a joy. We get to say, oh, 
let me tell you what real life looks like. He has entrusted us with his light to share it with the world, with the rest of the world. And as a church, this is what we're called to. It's not just your life all on your own. It's us living this out together. When we gather in a group, when we serve together, this is why we encourage one another throughout the course of the week and we pray for one another. We fan into the flame the light of Jesus inside of us. And that light burns bright because we're not slaves to sin anymore. We don't have to fear death. We celebrated last week, he conquered death. So even though we might die physically, his light of life inside of us goes on into eternity with our heavenly father. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, I just want to remind you of this today. And if you think, yeah, I don't know. I remember that at a, at a certain point in time, just look back over your shoulder. Has he not put broken pieces back together? Have you never sensed his Holy Spirit living inside of you? And sure, we wander all over the place, but we are drawn to the light that is inside of us. And so I don't know what's going on with your life, but we need to encourage one another with this. He is the light of the world. His light is shining inside of us and we are called to share it. It's not optional. It's what we're called. It's what we're created to do. If you are feeling overwhelmed and you need prayer after service, will you come find me? because I just want to encourage you to let that light shine. And I need you to encourage me in the same way. But if you have never placed your trust in Jesus and you wonder, well, what's at stake? This is what he promises to do for you too. He wants to push back the darkness that you face. He wants to shine his light in your life. He wants to reshape your brokenness. He promises to fill you with the Holy Spirit. And he says, I want to give you eternal life with your Father in heaven. And I, I realize that you're probably looking in lots of different places, but I don't think there's a better deal out there. Because he died in our place and he rose from the dead to prove that he is exactly who he claimed to be. So if you've never placed your faith in Jesus, I want to invite you to talk to somebody about that today. If you're tuning in online, I want to invite you to email us at info at genesischurch.me or drop us a comment in the comment section because we want to follow up with you. You're, you're not alone and you don't need to go through the world alone. But if you're in the room, come find me down front after service and let's talk. This is Jesus's invitation to you. It is his mission for us. So because he is the light of the world, let's go be the light of the world. Let's pray. Jesus, I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful that none of this depends on us because we know how sinful and how broken and how inconsistent we are. So would you help those of us that follow you to let your light shine in us, regardless of how we feel? And Holy Spirit, would you give us eyes to see the light, your light in others? Would you help us to fan that light into flame, to share it, to spread it everywhere we go from track meets and golf matches to work and school and everywhere in between? But Holy Spirit, I pray for my friends that are here today that are listening, that they've, they've never surrendered to Jesus. They don't know the light of life. Holy Spirit, would you do for them what you have done for me and so many others? Would you let your light shine so brightly that they couldn't ignore it, that they would be drawn to it? Would you help them to surrender their lives to Jesus and to find joy and hope and light instead of darkness and life instead of death? We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.